You're listening to Faith in Politics, presented by Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. Coming up this week, we have an interview with Tim Farron. Mark Johnson of the Church of Scotland joins us for the monthly musing. And as ever, our rundown of this month's news, which you might notice was recorded slightly ahead of time, because Rachel is off gallivanting in Eastern Europe without me. Sorry about that. So Helen, what have you been doing this month in Parliament? Um, Well, I've had a bit more downtime than usual, which has been quite nice. Um, The Lords, the pace can be slightly slower and things are sort of seasonal, I suppose. So last Monday when there wasn't a huge amount of work to do, um, me and my peers other researcher went to a policy exchange conference on unionism, which was really interesting. Michael Gove opened it and spoke quite a lot about how um, Britain more or less was more open to immigration now that we have left, well, now that we're about to leave the European Union, in that we're no longer compelled to do so. We now have the choice to do so, which didn't really speak to my experience or didn't, for me, really explain the immediate spike in hate crime after the referendum result. But there you go, it was a fun thing to be at, even so. How yeah, about you? That's, that's quite a weird thing. I'm not trying to get my head around that. Like, no. I, you know, I think Michael Gove is in this kind of bubble of... Um, a strange London bubble of why people voted to leave the European Union. I think if he looks at some polling data, I think he realised that immigration was a big issue. Mm. Um, well... Mine has been quite slow as well, actually, because the EU withdrawal bill had its third reading last Wednesday. So that's kind you, of gone. You get your life back. Yeah, yeah I get my life back <laughs> a bit, I think. Well, I'm still doing Brexit work, obviously, and the Brexit work doesn't finish. Um, the next bill is the trade bill, which should come in um, in a few weeks' time. Um, yeah, so we've just been doing DCMS, um, which is digital culture, media and sport um, work. And we had... Yeah, interesting conversation with the postcode lottery and um, we had a really interesting discussion with BBC um, journalists and producers about the workers' rights and the changes to the BBC. Absolutely fascinating discussion. I mean, stuff that I didn't know about how the BBC charters changed and what impact that has on newsmaking. Mm. And I think the broadcasting sector is a fascinating sector and how we run it in the UK is very different. Um, and we looked particularly at radio um, and talked about podcasts as well. So mm. it was a really, it was really nice, and they had a lot of interest in our podcast. Even, oh, really? even though they produce Radio Four programmes. Did, did you plug it? <laughs> I did when try. would be on Radio Four? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to plug it, but I think we're going to have to like apply for space because mm. you know that's how it works down the no, They're quite busy. I, I think they, I think they're quite busy. I don't think they need they need extra uh, podcast material. But yeah. Um, yeah, so it's really fascinating, and just I mean. As you know, Helen, like it's just fascinating to be in the house um, seeing people and oh, talking I just, to people. I just love and the buzz. And as you said, with the BBC thing, I think that's one of the things that I will miss most, whether it's at a select committee or the public accounts committee or whatever, when there's just so much expertise in the room and the standard of debate is so high and you just realise all at once. And I think we both are now, particularly that we're sort of in the crossing the finish line fairly soon. I just how lucky we have both been to get to be here. Yeah, so it's great. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a great buzz, and I'm gonna miss miss that. I'm just yeah miss being able to pop into meetings about all sorts of topics, not just topics that to do with work. So yeah, very grateful, and um, we've just been interviewing for our replacements. So oh, um, don't. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the less said about that, the better. So um, in September, you will hear our replacements who take over this podcast. So it's been quite interesting seeing who might be might be replacing us. But onto the news, Helen. I think you're going to start us off with an interesting story. Uh, yes, I am. Um, so this week, the largest study to date yet on welfare conditionality was released. Um, and it didn't really say anything that those of us at JPIT would necessarily be particularly um, surprised by. Um, it was the work of six universities jointly. And um, it, it, as I said, it kind of more or less affirmed um, a lot of the work that we have already um, done on sanctions. For anyone who's unaware, though I suspect that anyone who um, follows JPIT's work won't be particularly, particularly unaware of the, um, the sanctions regime or how it works. Um, sanctioning is basically having your benefits withdrawn because you don't appear to be making adequate effort to comply with um, the DWP's um, sort of criteria for you to, um, to get a job. And we know anecdotally that there are trivial, trivial reasons why people have their benefits withdrawn. There are stories of people going into labour and missing job centre appointments, having their sanctions removed. Likewise, people who show up late to appointments because they were at job interviews. Um, people who've gone to funerals or because of administrative errors beyond their control. Um, and as I said, this has really just backed up a lot, of, a lot of research that already exists, which confirmed that not only do sanctions push people into poverty, into crime, it's been argued as well in this report, um, into food bank use and into homelessness, but that they don't actually work either. And that the whole problem is that the, the message that underlies the system is that people who are in poverty are in poverty because it's it's their fault that people choose unemployment when this isn't the case and there's more and more research now and we know as well um, that work isn't necessarily the anecdote um, to poverty either 60 percent of people in poverty now are working families yeah i'm just going to say and the introduction of uc seems to have increased like the immediate introduction of universal credit has increased food bank usage by the latest trust or trust report so yeah i mean work doesn't pay at the moment and if the benefit sanction system the benefit system and the benefit sanctions are trying to push people into that i mean it's not paying so we're not pushing people out of poverty if anything from if we've got a welfare system that's not working and that's then also trying to push people into a job market that's not working properly mm. or you know paying people enough then it's a huge kind of vicious cycle for people and it's not yeah it's not conducive to a society which should value dignity these people aren't being given the dignity that they deserve really and the problem is it's not only that it doesn't work but that it's actually counterproductive and this is something that the the public accounts committee noted in their last report that it undermines people's ability to to find work yeah. um but if you've not if you're not eaten for two you know if you're not eaten a good meal or you've not been able to have a shower or you've not been able to buy a nice suit or something then and you can't go and look your best or be your best in an interview, the chances of you getting a good job are very small. Yeah. You know, just those little things of you having a bad day at the office, bad day in the interview, stop you from getting a job. So it's, it doesn't, none of it seems logical, does it? No, not in the least, which is why it's good news that an inquiry has been announced by the, um, the Work and Pension Select Committee. Um, so it would be brilliant to see what there's definitely an absence of so far, which is some evidence-based policy. I suppose it sort of brings me back to the work that JPIT is doing on the hostile environment at the minute in the sense that there isn't any data taken on whether or not its measures actually do deter illegal immigration. The point is not evidence-based policy. The point is to send some kind of message to the electorate that you're tough on illegal immigration or you're tough on benefit sanctions, benefit fraud rather. 
So fingers crossed really that there'll be some better news to report here and our very own Paul Morrison will be making a submission to it so look out for that as well. Well something going on this week um, is the 8th Amendment referendum in the Republic of Ireland. That's happening tomorrow. Um, and for those of you who don't know what the 8th Amendment is, um, it says that the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal rights to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect um, and as far as practical by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. So it's about abortion, if you hadn't picked up already. Um, in the Republic of Ireland, abortion is still illegal, um, in all cases except the risk to life of the mother, which includes suicide. But it, doesn't, it means that in cases of rape, incest, or, um, or exceptional disability, um, women are not able to have abortions, and many of them travel over to the UK. To make clear, the UK, I mean England, Wales or Scotland because abortion is still illegal in Northern Ireland. What has been proposed is that a 12 up to the abortions can happen up to 12 weeks unless and only can happen can only happen after that for medical reasons such as the woman's life is in danger. So that's half the amount of time that is currently in UK law, but it's still a significant change and would be a complete sort of turnaround for the Irish um, government. So it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Helen, as somebody who is from um, Northern Ireland but studied in the Republic, how do you think it's going to go? Um, it's very hard to say, and I think like many referendums, um, there's a huge amount of weight placed on the undecideds. The last poll I read was that 17% of voters who remain class themselves as undecided. Um, as you said, this is an extremely controversial issue. No one would have imagined in the least that this referendum would be taking place, say even 10 years ago. Um, but as you picked up on yourself, and this seems to be the decisive argument for a lot of people, and something that the Irish public on the whole, in my mind at least, seem to be coming around to, uh, which is the idea that while the law has been used in the past to try and make a moral statement about what we as a country believe, and of course that's very that was very much shaped by the church, um, there's an acceptance now that women do get abortions anyway. It doesn't stop the problem happening, it simply di displaces the problem instead. Yeah. So we have 11 women a week who travel to, to the UK, as you said, not the north of Ireland, to get an abortion. It's thought that um, every day two women have abortion pills imported into the country for those purposes, and as it stands there's a 14-year jail sentence for doing so. So in terms of the result, it's extremely hard to say for now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, there was a referendum on abortion um, in 1983 and 67% of people voted to keep the Eighth Amendment for the Eighth Amendment. And there was another three referendums in two, um, 1992 and 2002 um, about, and two of those referendums were amendments the 14 and 13, um, which was say, acknowledging that women could travel abroad for terminations and that information about services in other countries could be made available to them. These are both passed and added to the Constitution, which effectively acknowledges that despite the ban, many women simply went abroad for termination. So there's that been that acceptance that that happens and that's okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, something that I didn't know, which I found out, was that 
um, contraception is not free for everybody. It's means tests in the Republic of Ireland. And one of the obvious things that one of the obvious things, one thing that um, is statistically backed up quite time and time again is that if you if people have access to free contraceptions, the number of abortions goes down. So that's a step. I mean, the arguments made against um, are interesting and and I think fair in that some we should be investing and providing support for women in crisis pregnancies and more child benefit and support for women in education needs to be put in place mm-hmm. and abortions is not the silver bullet. Of course. And I agree. I agree with that as well. I think... But I think there's other problems and other arguments that you can have against that. For example, you can say that, well, though that abortion isn't the best option, um, that we do need to provide more money for child benefits and we do need to provide better support for women to stay in education when they've been pregnant and we do need to support women who are in crisis pregnancies better. But that's in an ideal world. Exactly. And so we have to think creatively about how we do that. And while I'm not from Ireland... Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow because I think on the one hand um, you know I can see both sides of the argument if the vote is yes that'll be a big movement away from the kind of moral stance that the public has taken in the past mm-hmm. and kind of I think shows maybe shows and the religiosity in the Republic is diminishing. Um, but I think that's undeniable. Um, but there has been quite an interesting nuanced conversation as well, that while this is somewhat about faith, there are people of faith who don't necessarily agree that the law should stay the way it is, who said that they feel very informed by their conscience, they feel informed by their faith in the sense that to them it's about compassion and the consequences of the current law have visited upon women in Ireland isn't really what faith should necessarily look like. Um, there's a, a Facebook group on my, my feed called Catholics Together for Yes, uh, which has gotten quite a lot of traction with people who feel that, yes, they might feel a particular way about abortion and what's right for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they should sort of impose consequen- um, impose decisions on other people that they won't necessarily have to deal with the consequences of. Um, so it's just interesting to see those kind of shades of grey um, being acknowledged, and it will be very interesting indeed. Um, and it is a massive turning point for Ireland and the fact that there has been a referendum in the first place and it will be fascinating to see how it goes. Yeah, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. Maybe we'll have a further discussion about it next month when we know the results. But now on to the monthly musing. When I was probably about seven or eight, my mother was cleaning out the china cabinet in our dining room. At one point, she took the wedding china of my great-grandmother out of the cabinet and placed a cup into my hands. Now, Martin, she said, be very careful with that. It's very fragile. The best part of 40 years later, when we were cleaning out the side china cabinet after my mum had died, we came across that cup and I started thinking about her words. Be very careful with that. It's very fragile. It struck me then, and it strikes me still. Fragility is a word that has different edges to it. It does give a sense of something that may be easily damaged. The word is, unfortunately, often used pejoratively. She's a fragile soul. The situation is increasingly fragile. But that's not what my mother meant when she used the word. 
she meant that something needed to be held with great care that was precious and of great value. I have a friend who has a problem with alcohol. He is an incredibly talented, brilliant young man, but he's almost certainly only one drink away from oblivion. Perhaps the greatest danger he faces would be to imagine himself strong enough to go back to the booze, that this time he could manage it. You could describe his life as fragile, and he constantly needs to recognise that he's not as strong as he might imagine. And what's true of him is true of all of us. The problem is that we've got into the business of denying our own fragility. I've been privileged over the years to spend a significant part of my life in and around some of Scotland's economically poorest communities. I would not deny for a moment that there are struggles and despair within them. But I must also tell you that in my experience, there are amazing places with some of the most incredible and generous people in the planet. I would prefer to think of these not as poor places, but as fragile communities, beautiful, precious, precarious. We live on a fragile planet. Temperatures have already risen beyond a level at which future life is likely to be sustainable. Ocean levels are rising. Species which have roamed the earth for millions of years are becoming extinct. Yet still we behave as if we can carry on destroying the planet in the vain hope that another one is just around the corner for our children and grandchildren, for their children and grandchildren. Then, let's consider the economy. We seem to continue to operate on the principle that the economy can just keep on growing. We need to recognise that we live as fragile human beings in fragile communities on a fragile planet with a fragile economy. And when I say these things, I mean beautiful and precious as well as precarious. This leads me to want to describe tentatively this term fragility to the God story and indeed to God. In creation, in the wilderness, in exile, in the prophets, in Jesus, in the spirit, God seems to have turned God's back on strength, power and permanence and chosen fragility instead. The stable, the cross, even the empty tomb. Fragile signs of a fragile God. All of this leads me to suggest that we don't need a big, powerful church. Instead, we need to do what God has done and chosen fragility. Welcome back to the podcast. We are in Portcullis House and boy do we have a treat for you today. We are joined by Tim Farron. 
Um, for anyone unaware, Tim was born into a working class family in Preston in 1970 and raised by a single mother. He joined the Liberal Party at the age of 16, contesting North Durham in 1992 against Theresa May. At the time, he was fresh out of Newcastle University, where he studied politics and served as the president of his students' union. Tim found his faith at the age of 18 rather by chance when on a family holiday to Singapore he came upon a Bible. He was then baptised at the age of 21. In 2005, Tim was elected the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale, a safe seat that the Conservatives had held for 95 years. His leadership potential was spotted right away and accordingly he quickly rose up the ranks. He was appointed as Parliamentary Private Secretary to former leader Ming Campbell in 2006. He was Shadow Minister for the Countryside and Rural Affairs in 2007 and he later was National President, a post that he held for five years in lieu of a cabinet post in the coalition. Of course, he also served as party leader for two years before resigning just last year, stating that the consequences of the focus on my faith is that I have found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. Outside of Parliament, he is a husband and father of four, a music enthusiast and a Blackburn Rovers fan. Thank you very much indeed, Mr Farron, for joining us today. Since the, the podcast, Faith in Politics, as you know, is about what it means to, to do God in the public sphere, um, when we asked our listeners what they most wanted to hear from you, um, unsurprisingly, the answer was to do with the apparent, well, what they saw as the incompatibility of your of your faith and with, with leadership, particularly given the previous leaders say May and Brown who were clergy's children, uh, Blair who was a Catholic albeit um, a quiet one, um, broke this sort of um, glass ceiling. Uh, so just to quote your own um, resignation speech um, that you said, um, and what I imagine is very uh, deliberate wording on your part, that the consequences of the focus on my faith um, is that I have found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. Um, so could you just um, expand on that for yeah. us? Yes, I mean really simply, and I guess my experience was, uh, and, and some of this I'm sure was not entirely uh, anybody anybody else's fault but mine, um, but I, it occurred to me that I had a choice, given the focus upon my faith and what it what it meant, um, I was either, I think, left with the, uh, three choices, I think. One was to, frankly, to you know, commit apostasy and uh, and compromise my faith to the point of it, it it being car crashed. The second thing is to continue playing a straight bat uh, to any inquiry about the the nature of, uh, of Christianity, um, but as a result, um, just end up being uh, like an advertising hoarding that's been vandalised. I was the main spokesperson for the party. And yet, all that anybody wanted to talk about, at least for some of the time, uh, were my views on my faith and what its outworkings were. And if your choices are, you know, become apostate um, or uh, be a rubbish leader, um, they are both rubbish choices. And the third choice is step back and be yourself. Um, and so, I think for every in, in every sense, that was the right choice. Now then, um, why was it? Uh, why did other people not have to make that decision? I think there's various things. Uh, maybe I was a little bit overt about my faith and other people hadn't been and it was therefore seen to be more 
uh, game. Um, maybe because the tag evangelical was attached to me, not one that I ever chose myself, but you know. Um, uh, or maybe also because to be a committed Christian and to be a liberal and of the left is just a bit weird. And, uh, and I don't see why it should be, um, but it seemed to be a bit weird, and that's because people have fallen victim to you know, cultural descriptors that have been imported from the States. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and, and maybe I'm not as wise as I should be. Maybe it's my fault. So, you know, but it is what it is, and I'm happy where I am. Uh, so you've argued then that not only, in your view, are um, Christianity and liberalism not incompatible, um, but that liberalism actually draws its origins from mm. Christianity. So could you expand on that for us? Well, well, if you want to get really deep into it, the concept of... Uh, I, don't, I think you, lots of people decide to ignore the first couple of chapters of Genesis. They really shouldn't. Um, because when I say I believe in equality, well, lots of people who don't believe in God believe in equality, but they believe in equality on a very low level. Uh, we are merely slightly more advanced animals. Um, if you look at the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we're not just equal, we are colossal importance and dignity. Uh, you're made in the image of God to sort of rule over uh, uh, creation with God. That's an astonishing uh, elevation. Um, and so to think human beings are actually really matter um, is a driver of any, I would say, uh, liberal society. I'd also argue that liberalism is also the best guardian of uh, of any faith system, true liberalism. Um, because what is it to be a liberal? It is to, irrespective of your worldview, defend other people's rights to hold their worldview. Um, and so true, proper liberalism is what, you know, Christians and indeed any other faith group needs. Indeed anybody who might ever think in a million years they might just um, have their rights and liberties curtailed, you need liberalism. So when you refer to liberty and you put this in the words of George Orwell in the Theos lecture that you gave um, in 2017. Um, as he said, if liberty means anything at all, it is the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. But mm. to turn away from that form of liberalism in the sense of free speech and towards perhaps economic or classical liberalism, mm. you've said that your faith informs your politics. Um, you're known to be more on the left of your party. And I'm interested really in whether your view of markets is informed by Christianity as well, and if you hold economic or classical liberalism to be incompatible. Well, with, I, I'd always describe myself as a social liberal, and a social liberal probably today means something quite different. It talks about permissiveness and what have you. But actually, if you go back over up until probably the last 20 years, to be a social liberal as uh, opposed to an economic liberal. Now, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but you know, if I was to pick a you know, a philosopher that I thought got it right and got it right first is John Stuart Mill, who's this, who essentially understood that being allowed to do something, being permitted to do something, isn't good enough if you can't. Uh, it's all right saying I'm allowed to buy a house. Well, I'm allowed to buy it, but I haven't got the money. I, there's no freedom there at all. So freedoms need to be actual um, rather than just theoretical. And I think classical liberalism is all about act, the, theoretical freedom. Um, what the use is, what, you know, I'm afraid I can't exercise a theoretical freedom, I can only exercise a practical one, which is why I'm a John Stuart Mill uh, liberal and not a, a Hayek liberal. Um, and uh, is that informed by my faith? I mean, look, in the end, 
I want good I want good government because the most important thing you should be doing if you're in politics as a Christian is to seek to serve people and treat them all with enormous dignity um, and to try and put yourself in their shoes at all times, in which case you want good quality government and you shouldn't, in my view, be obsessively ideological and dogmatic because they're just, you know, um, human doctrines that are likely to likely to be flawed. And so, I, I mean, it's one of the things that attracted me to the Liberals in the first place was that it was a, a party of idealism that valued the individual but didn't dogmatically adhere to uh, either what um, uh, you know at the time Milton Friedman was was saying and Margaret Thatcher um, or or indeed you know Marx or any of his adherents that's um, that's a bit of common sense is a good thing. Uh, so to turn then to a good government or perhaps uh, lack thereof depending on your perspective uh, like the remainder of the Liberal Democrats you voted in 2010 um, to go into to coalition um, with the Conservatives and you've alternately described the party's, your party's efforts in the coalition as a 2 out of 10 That's an um, incomplete yeah. <laughs> quote but carry on and I'll give you the complete one and also praise them for, for kind of softening um, the, the harsher Tory policies as well in the sense that you said if you ever doubted the effectiveness of the Liberal Democrats in government just look at what's happening without us and then yeah. you went on to and to quote Jodie Mitchell's big yellow taxi. Yeah, and we commend always you seem on to your... go, <laughs> you don't know what it's got, what you got till it's gone. Uh, um, we commend you on your brilliant taste. Thank you very much. Also, um, also a massive fan. But my question really um, is if you were party leader at the time in 2010, yeah. um, is there anything that you would have uh, done differently? And how yeah. might British society look had there been a Lib Lab coalition as opposed so to a Liberal Democrat Conservative? There's a lot of things in there. Let's start with the last first. Um, the arithmetic is really important to remember. So Liberal Democrats plus Labour equaled 315 seats, yes, which short, is 11 is short of majority. Mm -hmm. And that would have been dependent upon Corbyn et al voting for the budget, as if. Um, so there would have been no majority at all, and a lot less than the majority. It also, I remember, by the way, I was one of those, uh, as was Ed Davey, um, and who argued very much that we shouldn't just talk to the Tories, but to Labour as well, because um, we were fooling ourselves about the arithmetic too mm -hmm. at the time. And I remember the response we got from the Labour Party when we went to see them was, well, I guess we'll talk to you, but we're not going to touch the Nationalists with a barge pole. That was the, the, the Labour Party's response. In other words, no majority. So there was no Lib Lab coalition on the table and it's staggering the number of people who think there was and it's simple arithmetic it wasn't and Labour were delighted to be in opposition after 13 years in power they might not feel like that now but they they did at that point um, and so that left us with two choices really one was coalition and the other was something else um, and so I, I still kind of think we probably did the right thing um, but I, I remember warning I voted for the coalition I also remember warning the parliamentary party on the night we voted for it that this will to to toxify us for a generation um, whether we like it or not because you know at that point in 2010 we were still getting people who would bring up on the doorstep I'm not voting for you because of the Lib Lab pact which happened when I was seven and so don't think these things don't last long in people's memories they really do so to go back to the original half quote <laughs> which is the two out of ten quote I said I'd give us eight out of ten for policy and two out of ten for politics. Uh, and I absolutely stand by that. I think we did colossal good in coalition and prevented appalling bad, and I think we were very naive. Uh, so what are your hopes then for the future of the party in the sense that, as you've touched upon um, already today, um, tolerance is, is a dying art. Uh, so in that sense, given the polarisation that we see today, 
um, which sort of uh, shrinks the centre ground and then arguably the appeal of centre ground parties as well. How do you mm. how do you see the Lib Dems regaining the territory? That they so I think, um, I mean, they always say that half of success is turning up and the Lib Dems keep turning up. And, and I think UKIP's uh, demise um, is, uh, in many ways, you'd think that's got no benefit for the Liberal Democrats in terms of ideological space. In terms of physical space in the political marketplace, there's a lot of benefit there for a lot of space for us. I mean, we are... We are now, I would argue, um, certainly as far as England's concerned, very clearly the third party again. Well, we weren't for maybe 10 years. Um, and so I think things are changing there. I think there is that um, uh, uh, incredible polarisation around um, kind of a nationalist um, conservative government and this extremely ideological sort of far left Corbyn Labour Party. And so the space is colossal. The thing is, though, we haven't got to talk about it as centre ground because nobody really thinks like that. And the danger is there's an awful lot of people out there who are yesterday's politicians, which might include me, uh, and who are um, their generals without armies. And so they'll turn up on the Today programme and say terribly interesting things, but who's following them? And whatever you think about, you know, Farage and Corbyn, there's a grassroots thing going on there. Um, and what I would love to see is some level of kind of common sense approach to politics which allows um, a more, less extreme viewpoints to gain ascendancy. I think for us, um, I think the demise of UKIP, uh, I think whatever happens with Brexit, I think things will change after next March one way or another. Um, and I think that the opportunity for us to grow uh, is, is good. And I think with the local elections we just saw in May, give you a bit of a sense of the direction of travel. Our party membership is double what it was three years ago. It's bigger than the Tory parties. So our ability to make a difference on the ground and affect results in elections, local and national, is greater than it was. So I think we, whether it takes us a long time to come back, I don't know, but I think there'll be at least a steady recovery for us because people kind of need pragmatic liberal politics. And again, to, to go back just briefly to um, tolerance, uh, what do you think is the greatest sense of uh, the greatest threat rather to this sort of liberalism that you describe and how can the next generation of politicians and, and policy makers uh, fight back particularly how do we love one's neighbour when this form of liberalism um, so gets ugly give it a different I mean there's lots of different names for it but um, I think identity politics is a great threat um, and uh, because it means that you automatically demonise the other side um, to the extent I was just talking over lunch with a friend about, you know, how, how would you convince, you know, 10, 20% of people who voted leave that they should have voted remain? And the reality is, I think now identity politics has come to the extent that that's the, that's the equivalent of going into Merthyr Tydfil in 1983 and saying, what would it take you to vote Conservative? You get a smack in the face. Um, it's not, not possible. It's like going to United fans saying, what would it take for you to support Manchester City? Get stuffed. They're not my tribe. Mm. Um, and I think that's sadly where we're... So that's a massive threat to liberalism um, because it means people are uh, utterly tribally located. They, don't, they won't tolerate the other side. They won't seek to understand the other side. 
And that's the job of liberals. It's actually the job of Christians as well to value people, not to demonise people because they come from a different background to you. Um, as I would say a similar, if not greater, problem exists in Scotland over the division with regard to their referendum in 2014. Um, and the only answer is to, is, to, is to love the other, including your enemy, especially your enemy, uh, and make them not your enemy. Um, and and that, that, is the, that is the answer. Um, and, uh, but I think identity politics, people living in tribes and demonising the other is a colossal threat to stability, moderation, liberalism. Well, Tim, thank you so much again for, um, for agreeing to, to join us today. Thank you for having us. Good luck. All the best. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Faith in Politics with Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. And if you enjoy Faith in Politics, which of course you do, then don't forget to share the love by rating, reviewing and subscribing to us on iTunes, which will help other listeners to find us as well. Thanks a million, as always, for listening.